Our scripture this morning is taken from John 3, verses 16 and 17. I would invite you to follow along. These are very familiar verses, but you follow, please, along with me. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 73 in the New Testament. Hear the words of the Lord. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we just sang, um, why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. And, uh, Lord, in one way it's true to sing that. We don't know why you have chosen to bring such vile and wretched sinners into the inheritance of your son. Um, but as our text makes clear today, there is another sense in which we can give an answer to that. And it is simply this, that you've chosen to love us. And, uh, we've not earned your love, Lord. We have not been able to labor to attain it, but you have freely given that love. And I pray, Lord, that this morning you would open our spiritual eyes and enable us to see more clearly the great hope and the great confidence and boldness, the, the courage that that truth ought to instill in us, Lord, as we uh, approach you in the name of Jesus Christ, as we confess sin, as we lay hold of forgiveness, as we seek cleansing before that great day of judgment when we will all stand before you. God, we pray that your, your love will embolden us to, to run you down, so to speak, to chase you down, Lord, by the means you have provided for us in your gospel so that we might come to truly know you and to truly know by your spirit that we belong to you and that we have been forgiven in Christ. Lord, let your love be our consolation. I pray that you would minister to us with it this morning. Be with those who are not among us. Lord, we think of Bill with his hip surgery. We think of Marcia with her knee surgery, Lord, and I'm thankful for the ways that you are healing them and allowing them to recover. Uh, I pray that you would minister to them where they are this morning. Minister your great love to them, Lord. Don't let them feel that they are separated from you, though they are separated from your people here at Oak Ridge. Uh, remind them of the great love that you have that knows no bounds and cannot be contained by where we are geographically we go and we dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand keeps us and your right hand upholds us, Lord. Give them great hope in that reality. God, I pray for those who are sick and not among us, Lord, that you would heal them, that you would uh, renew their joy in the salvation you have provided, and that we would rejoice in the day that you bring them back among us. Father, now we pray you'd be with us. Open your word to us and fill our hearts with a sense of wonder and awe as we behold the great love that our Father has had for us. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. Amen. Well, today we come to uh, a verse in the Gospel of John that is very meaningful to me and is very meaningful to many, many other people. In fact, I would, I would say that it's probably more often the case that it's not so much meaningful as um, it is uh, somewhat blasé, uh, somewhat uh, we've just become so accustomed to what these truths are saying that they've lost their meaning. But in my life, the Lord has used this verse um, to kind of loop my personal history with him around this verse and tie me to it. Uh, This was the first verse that I ever read in the Bible. I remember when I was in kindergarten, I came home with my red Gideon's New Testament in King James. And I was so excited to show my mom. And my mom asked me, son, do you know the most important verse in the Bible? Do you know the most important verse in that book? And we could debate whether or not this is the most important verse. Let that slide for now. But she said, do you know the most important verse? And I said, no, I I don't. She said, it's John 3.16. And that's when she quoted it to me in King James and said, you need to memorize that verse. So I took a red pen and I highlighted that verse. Even then, I had no fear of writing in my Bible and highlighting as a a five-year-old. And I memorized that verse, the first verse I memorized. When it came time for me to be confirmed in the Lutheran church, uh, I was the only one being confirmed that year. And for some reason, the pastor decided that it would be appropriate for me to preach the sermon on that Sunday. And so as part of my confirmation, I not only had to stand before the congregation, but I had to preach to the congregation. And the text that was assigned to me was John 3.16. My mom found that sermon Uh, a few years ago and sent it to me and I was actually pretty astonished that even as an unbeliever I recognized the wondrous truths of the gospel that are contained here in John 3.16 and then around 11 years ago through the writings of John Wesley and Ian Murray the Lord used this particular verse to settle my heart with real conviction that God not only loves the world in general and loves other people, but he actually loves me personally. The Lord used this verse to seal that, to confirm that in my own heart. And so I'm very thankful this morning to be entrusted by God with the task of preaching this verse. I'm somewhat intimidated to do this because it's such a familiar passage, but I hope that in some way you and I will be able to glory in the Father's love that's been revealed to us in Christ Jesus as it's described here. This morning, we're going to look at this uh, verse, these verses, John 3, 16 and 17, and we're going to get into verse 18, actually. Uh, We're going to look at that under three main headings. And for those of you who want to take notes and want to know where we're going, uh, point number one is the foundation of the gospel, the Father's love. And I have it written in my notes this way, the foundation of the gospel, equal sign, the Father's love. Number two, the second main heading, uh, the extent of the Father's love. We're going to look at that together. How far does that love in Christ extend? And then number three, that final point, which will be the shortest, receiving the Father's love. Once we see the Father's love as the foundation of the gospel and we acknowledge the extent of that love, what are we called upon to do? We're called upon to receive it. So that's where we're going. So let's look, first of all, at 
that first main point, the foundation of the gospel, which is the Father's love. Two weeks ago, we saw in chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, how Jesus answered Nicodemus' question about how the new birth comes about in a person's life. How is the new birth actually accomplished? And Jesus, in, in order to answer that question, points back to the bronze serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness and said, Nicodemus, it's like this. The new birth takes place. In order for the new birth to take place, two things have to happen. First of all, like the serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up as the source of our salvation. And then secondly, as the Israelites received that new life by actually looking upon the bronze serpent, so also sinners today receive eternal life by looking upon Christ and being awakened in that look to believe. So when the gospel of Christ crucified is heralded and lifted high in the world for sinners to hear, the Holy Spirit is pleased to take the foolishness of preaching and through it to blow upon the sinner's soul with the winds of regeneration and open their spiritual eyes to see the glory of Christ and to believe in him. That's why we at Oak Ridge Community Church absolutely believe in the necessity of preaching. That's why we spend an hour on a Sunday morning preaching. That's why we go out and evangelize the lost with the preaching of the gospel. Because it's through the preaching of Christ lifted up for sinners that the Holy Spirit chooses to awaken sinners to new life in him. So that is the foundation of the new birth. It is the Son of Man being lifted up and it is sinners looking upon him. And the Spirit using that to bring them to new life. But what Jesus teaches us here in John 3.16 is that there is a foundation of the new birth that goes even deeper than that. That the new birth is not merely based upon the work of Christ that was accomplished on the cross. The new birth is based upon something else. The new birth is built upon the saving work of Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross, but the act of lifting up the Son of Man on that cross is built upon something else, which Jesus identifies in verse 16 as the Father's love. He says the Son of Man must be lifted up. And why? Why is it that the Son of Man must be lifted up? That's where that little word at the beginning of verse 16 is so important. It, it, that word for... For God so loved the world. That's connecting what Jesus says in verse 16 back to what he has just said in verses 14 and 15. The Son of Man must be lifted up. Why must the Son of Man be lifted up? For in this way, God so loved the world. Probably better to translate, because in this way, the Father has loved the world. Therefore, the Son must be lifted up. The Father's love and His desire for sinners to be saved is the eternal pillar that upholds the eternal life that is provided for us through Jesus Christ. D.A. Carson put it well when he said, as the new birth has been grounded in the lifting up of the Son of Man, so also the lifting up of the Son is itself grounded upon the love of God. And notice this. If you're already dozing on me, wake up. This is life and death here. This is eternity at stake. And whether or not you actually hear and believe in the words that are written here. 
Don't, don't come in here and think, I've heard this verse so often. What are you going to teach me that's new? Fight that urge to fall into just negligence here this morning. This is, this is a moment where you are going to see the greatest demonstration of the love of God that has ever been put forth in this world. How dare us sit here in these pews with glazed over eyes and wandering thoughts. Repent right now. Repent. And refocus your attention on the Lord. You need to wake up and you need to see this. I'm not joking. I want you to notice this. The love that the Father has that Jesus describes here is not a frivolous, arbitrary, capricious, or even unpredictable love. It's a love. He describes this love as something that was already accomplished in the past. He says, God so loved the world. It's something that's already taken place. The past tense of his act of love is proof that Jesus is not talking about the love of the Father that is revealed in time when the Son is lifted up. Jesus is talking about the love of the Father that was settled in eternity that demanded the Son of Man be lifted up. Do you follow me there? This love that God has had towards sinners is something that was not something... It didn't just crop up in the midst of time. It wasn't something that as history was playing out, all of a sudden God sees, oh man, what's wrong with mankind? They're sinning against me. I better do something about this or else I'm going to lose control. That's not the love of the Father that was demonstrated in Christ. From eternity past, the Father has settled it in His own will and in His own decree that He was going to love sinners in this way. The gospel is not plan B. The gospel has been plan A all along, right? Amen? God did not, and, and this is why this is so important. God did not have to love us. You know that. God did not have to set his love upon us in order to be good. God did not have to love us in order to be righteous. God didn't even have to love us in order to be loving. Did you know that? God can send you straight to hell with no explanation and still be entirely loving in and of himself. But the moment that God decided, if we can speak that way, the moment that God settled it in his own will that he was going to love sinners, in that moment there was laid upon God a divine constraint to demonstrate that love in a certain way. You may not understand how radical that is. To speak of God being constrained to do anything. The moment that God decided, the moment he chose, the moment he settled his will, that he was going to love sinners, in that moment it became necessary for him to love sinners in this way. Christ's death is the foundation of the new birth, but God's love is the bedrock on which that foundation has been laid. And that love was settled in, from all eternity past. Now, if you don't understand, thank you, brother. 
Thank you. Give me another one, Eger. Amen. If you don't understand this about the gospel, then you are never going to grasp the glory and the hope of the gospel. If you think that God has just loved us in Jesus because we decided that we would love him back, then you're missing the depth of grace that God has manifested towards us in his son. God did not start loving you when you decided to start loving him. Or unbelievers in this room. I'm not ignorant to think that there are no unbelievers here. Unbelievers in this room. God is not going to start loving you when you decide that you're going to give him a chance to love you. Or you're going to accept that love. You're not the one in control here. As John, 1 John 4.19 says, we love God only because he first decided to love us. Our love for God is a response to God's love for us. You did nothing. You did not do anything to make God love you. In fact, as sinners, you did just the opposite. With every sin that you have committed and every violation of God's holy will for you revealed in His law, with every lapse in loving the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength, every moment that you have failed to do that, all you've done is heap up for yourself a Mount Everest of reasons for why God should not love you. But in the glory of God, in the glory of the gospel... We are told through Jesus Christ right here that we, as sinners, we don't have to do anything to make God love us. It was the Father's good pleasure to graciously and freely love us. And the proof of that is simply this. He gave His only begotten Son so that you and I might receive new life in Him. So if you, don't, if you did not do anything to make God love you in the first place, then you don't have to do anything to make God love you now. Isn't that good news to you? That's good news to me. Because when I wake up in the morning and I, and I feel the weight of my own sin and my discouragement and the ways that I despair and the ways that I doubt God and I don't believe in His Word, all I find in myself are reasons why God should not love me. But the good news of the gospel, Jesus comes alongside of us and he says, my friend, you need to understand this. God doesn't love you because of your love for him. God has chosen to love you freely despite the fact that you've never loved him. This is the reality that Jesus is pressing upon us here in John 3.16. And it's at the heart of the gospel call that comes to awaken sinners to new spiritual life in Christ. That you don't have to earn the Father's love. The Father's love is there to be received. 1 John 4, 8 through 9, God is love, and he manifested that love among us. That is, he revealed it. He, he put it on public display in this particular way. By sending his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In other words, the giving of the son is the sign and the seal and the pledge from the father of his great love for you. 
And letting this sink in is what gives you and I the courage that we need to take hold of the good news of Christ crucified and to storm the gates of heaven pleading the blood of Jesus Christ as the only sufficient cause for God the Father to forgive us of our sins and to welcome us into His kingdom. It was the Father's love for the world that constrained Him to lift up His Son in death in the first place. And so if, in love, God chose to do all of that for us while we were still sinners, do you think He will withhold that love from us now if in Christ we seek to have it? If His love motivated Him to give salvation to sinners through the crushing of His Son, then do you really think He's going to slap your hand away whenever you go to take it in Christ's name? No, absolutely not. Love is the foundation of the gospel, and it is a free, sovereign love that God has chosen to give us in Christ. And the Father's love is put on display in the giving of His Son for everyone who will come and take that love. Now, you may be sitting there saying to yourself, well, of course, I know that God is love, and I know that God has great love for sinners, I know that in love, God sent forth His Son to die for sinners. But how do I know if that love is actually for me? How do I know that I'm included in that love that the Father has shown to us in His Son? What about election? What about predestination? Doesn't the love of God that's been demonstrated in Christ only apply to those whom God has chosen to save? If I'm not sure whether I am among the elect or not, how then can I be sure that the Father actually loves me? Or that the love of the Father in Christ is for me? Well, that is a great question, if you are indeed asking that. And Jesus gives us the answer here when he tells us about the extent of the Father's love. How do we know that we are included in this love that God has manifested in Jesus Christ, in the giving of His Son. Jesus gives us two ways by which we see the proof of that love, and it's by seeing the extent of that love. First of all, we see the extent of the Father's love by what the Father gave in order to demonstrate that love. We see the extent of the Father's love for us by looking at what he gave in order to demonstrate it. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now truly, there are many ways that God has shown his love for us and for all of the world. Ways in which God's love falls upon us in common grace. The Lord giving us food, the Lord giving us life, the Lord sustaining us with good things to enjoy, God giving us rains and and seasons of harvest and and allowing joy to be in our hearts. You know, Jamie and I were were, uh, watching just some of a football game the other night. It was a rerun or something. And we both kind of thought to ourselves, it's amazing that God even gives us grace to be able to do something like that. To envision and, and, and bring into reality a game like football And then to allow people to enjoy that game and to cheer and to have a great time, that is an expression of God's good nature towards us. 
that we have good things like that to enjoy in this life. That the fact that God provides anything like that is proof to us that he is our creator truly, genuinely, and actually loves us. But infinitely beyond that, the Father has declared his love for the world in giving his Son. This is the highest and the most precious gift that the Father could have given. And this is, in fact, the only way that the Father could actually demonstrate the nature of His love that He has chosen to have for us. There was nothing else that the Father could have done in order to prove to us how deep and how full and how rich and wide and great His love is for us other than giving of His Son. Because His Son is the object of His eternal pleasure. It's the one. He is the only one in whom, it says in Isaiah 42.1, He is the only one in whom Yahweh's soul takes delight. What kind of being is it that can give eternal delight to the eternal soul of the eternal God? The only way that the Father could demonstrate the fullness and the richness and the absolute sufficiency of His love towards us is by giving us the object of His love. The one who is called the Son of His love. That's what the Bible calls Jesus. He's not just the Son. He is the Son of God's love. The object of His love. The, the, the peculiar object of the loving affection of the Father. The Father proves His love for you and me when He takes the object of His infinite pleasure and gives Him over for our salvation. Is that not enough to prove to you the extent of the Father's love for you? Paul picks up on this, right? In Romans chapter 8, verse 32, he says, If the Father did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, will He not also with Him freely give us all things? If He's given us something that is so great and immeasurable, is it too much to think that He'll give us lesser things and provide all that we need? If God demonstrated the extent of His resolve to love you in doing the hardest thing, delivering up His Son in love for your salvation, then how will He not also be willing to demonstrate His love for you in lesser things? If He delivered up His Son to death for you, then will He entertain a charge against you at His throne? If he raised up his son from the dead and called him to ascend on high to glory where he would intercede for you at the Father's right hand, then, it is, ever, then it is, is it ever appropriate for you to think that the Father would abandon you at any moment in this life? If you walk into tribulation or distress or persecution comes upon you, will any of those things ever be able to separate you from the Father's love in Christ? Paul's answer is an emphatic no. Because in order for something to separate us from the love of God in Christ, that something would have to be greater than God's love for us in Christ. And there is nothing in the world that exists like that. 
No principality, no power, no ruler of this present darkness. There is nothing in the world. No kings, no threatenings from governors and governments, no persecution, no tribulation, not even death itself will be able to separate us from the love of the Father that's given to us in Christ Jesus. That's built upon the nature of the Son and the infinite love that the Father has with the Son. Remember what Jesus says in John 17? He says with, to his disciples, I, you have been loved by the Father with the very love that the Father has for me. Do you sense how rich and infinite that kind of love is? Now, there's a distinction there. We're going to get to that in a minute. But I just want you to take in the reality that God has loved us in his Son. And the extent of that love is proven by giving of his Son. think that right there we have the expression of Jeremiah 31.3 whenever the Lord says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. That's not just a love that begins at that point when God spoke that and then continues on into eternity. That's a love that in its nature and in its essence is everlasting. The very love of the Father for the Son. So, God's shown us the extent of his love by revealing to us his willingness, what he was willing to give in love for us. Now, secondly, we see the extent of the Father's love also in the object of that love. So Jesus has not only told us the extent of the Father's love by declaring to us what the Father was willing to give in order to save us, but he also declares the extent of the Father's love by defining the object of that love. You see this in John 3.16. Where according to Jesus, the recipients of the or the recipient of the Father's love that is manifested in Christ is the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. What does Jesus mean by world here? That's a topic of debate. Some say that this is talking about, just talking about all kinds of nations. That the world is just telling Nicodemus, God has chosen to love more than just the Jewish people. He's also chosen to love people from among the nations of the world. B.B. Warfield held to that. Pretty weighty. Contender in that corner. Others say that what Jesus means by the world here is that it has to be limited to the world of God's chosen people, his elect. Because God doesn't love evil. So how could he love in his son those who are evil and are never going to be saved? It's got to be limited to his elect. Well, as a Reformed Baptist, as a Baptist who holds to the doctrines of the Reformation, I do believe that the Father has chosen some sinners to be saved in Jesus Christ and he has chosen to leave other sinners in their sin in order to be condemned. Clearly, this is what the Bible teaches. Right? In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. What about those who are not in the end holy and blameless before God? Doesn't that mean that they have not been chosen in love in Christ? What about Romans chapter 9? where Paul talks about vessels of wrath and vessels of honor. 
And that some vessels of wrath are simply endured by God and not destroyed for the sake of showing the riches of his grace upon vessels of honor, vessels of mercy. That that Romans chapter 9 also where it says that God has a purpose according to election that must be continued. Or what about... First, or 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, when Paul talks about the grace in Christ Jesus that God the Father placed upon us from before the ages began, that the salvation that is ours in Christ has been ours since before the world ever even existed because God decreed to give it to us. Not everyone receives that blessing. So what does that mean for those who do not receive it? It means that they are not chosen to receive it. Jesus himself is going to, I know this can be shocking to hear this, but Jesus himself is going to teach this as we walk through the Gospel of John. John 6.44 and John 6.65, Jesus is going to talk about the reality that no man can come to Jesus unless it has been granted to that person by the Father. So what happens to those? What does that mean in relation to those who do not come to Jesus ever? It means that it has not been granted to them to come to Jesus, doesn't it? John 10, 26, Jesus looks at a bunch of unbelievers and he says, you do not believe because you are not part of my sheep. They're not, he doesn't say to them, you're not part of my sheep because you haven't believed yet. He says to them, you're not part of my sheep. You don't believe because you are not part of my sheep. You haven't been given to me as sheep to be saved from my father. John 17, 9, where Jesus prays his high priestly prayer for the salvation of his people, he says explicitly in verse 9, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you, Father, have given me out of the world. Clearly, there's a distinction there between the saving work that Jesus accomplishes for those whom are the elect of God and his love that is manifested towards those who are not among the elect. There's a distinction there. And I'm not going to deny that. I believe that because that's what the Word of God teaches. However, with that acknowledged, in John 3, 16 and 17, clearly Christ does not limit the Father's love revealed in the giving of his Son to the elect. He does not say, for God so loved the elect that he gave his son. Nor does he say, for God did not send his son into the world in order to condemn the elect, but rather that the elect might be saved through him. That's not what Jesus says. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. There's a universal aspect to the love of God that is being manifested in the giving of the Son. And if we distort that, and if we don't maintain the teaching of Jesus here in this verse, we distort the gospel. And we distort the very character of God that has been revealed to us in that gospel. Let me explain. The love of God in Jesus Christ does not just go out into the world as good news to the elect. It goes out into the world as good news to sinners and to all sinners who are in the world. 
This is why Jesus, or God the Father can, in, John, in Acts 17, this is why he can stand before the entire world and command all men everywhere to repent and come to Jesus. Because there's a day of judgment that's coming on which day Jesus will be our judge. So the Father heralds that eternal gospel out to all the world and calls every man, woman, and child to repent of their sin and come to Jesus now before it's too late. Because on the day of judgment, there will be no saving mercy offered. The books are closed and then reopened. And the time for giving account of your works is there. In the context of John 3.16, it's clear that the Father's love that Jesus is talking about is a love that includes the entire world. Every sinner in the world. And Ian Murray said very appropriately about John 3.16... That within this verse, there is a distinction in the text between the larger number who are the objects of love and the smaller number who believe. There's a a larger object of the Father's love that is titled here, the world. And then there is a smaller number within that world who actually come to believe. Now, Jesus doesn't say in this verse that the Father's love is limited to those who believe. He says the Father's love is given to the whole world. And there are those within the world who believe that love. This is exactly what verse 18 is teaching. The same thing. Where the world that God loves includes two categories of people that are universal categories. You either fit into one or you fit into the other. There's no third option in the world. You either believe in Jesus and the love of God manifested in Him. You either receive the forgiveness of sins that's in His name or you remain condemned before His throne. There's no third option. So those who believe in that love are those who are saved. Those who do not believe in that love are those who are condemned. But here's the point. The love of the Father is still equally manifest before both groups. Because that's the deciding factor. Do you believe in the love of God or do you not believe? That's what determines where you're going to spend eternity. These two categories apply to humanity universally. So that means that the Father's love that is demonstrated in His Son must go out universally, equally to both groups. And one group believes while the other does not. I hate that we started late today because this is not going to be, this is not a shorter sermon, I'm sorry. Amen, Eger. Amen, brother. I really appreciate your support. Thank you. For some, these two truths are very difficult to hold together. Special love that God has for his elect, a love that actually accomplishes salvation in them. And then this love that he has for the non-elect that freely and genuinely offers full salvation to all who receive it. For some, these two truths are very difficult to hold together. But apparently, it was not difficult for Jesus to hold these truths together. And I think we need to learn from that. 
He spoke freely about the Father's special love for His elect. That's that verse in John 17. I think it's 24, 23 and 24, where He speaks about the elect being loved with the very love that the Father has for the Son. That is a special electing love. Jesus spoke freely about the Father's special love for His elect, but He also spoke unhesitatingly about the Father's love and desire to save even those who clearly were not part of the elect. Don't you remember in Mark chapter 10, the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus, he says, I've done this and I've done that. What else do I need to do to to inherit eternal life? And it says in Mark 10 that Jesus looked upon him and loved him. Not some lesser form of love. He loved him. He had compassion on him. And he said, one thing you lack, you go sell all your idols. You get rid of your sin and you come follow me and then you will have eternal life. And what did that man do? He turned away and walked away from Jesus. Now, did Jesus know that was going to happen when he first started talking to that man? Absolutely he did. Did that keep Jesus from genuinely and truly loving that man? Or sincerely calling that man to a life of forgiveness and cleansing by following after him? Absolutely not. What about in John 5, 34? This is my favorite example. John 5, 34, Jesus looking at the very same Pharisees whom he is going to say in John chapter 10, do not belong to him and are not part of his sheep. In other words, they are not going to be saved. He looks at them and he says, I am saying these things to you so that you might be saved. Now, did he mean that or did he not mean that? Was that a sincere appeal to those who are not among the elect to come and be saved? Better believe it. Better believe it. My friend, I, I, don't want, I don't pretend to know how these two things come together. Okay? But God forbid that I twist the Scriptures and the way that God has declared His Gospel to us in order to make these two things fit into my puny understanding of the intricacies of God's grand dealings with His world. God forbid that I twist His Scriptures in order to make them make sense to my mind rather than conforming my mind, bending my mind to what God has revealed in His Word. That's submission. That is submitting to the Lord with all of our mind and all of our heart. I know and I believe that there is a special, unique, redeeming love for God's elect that is revealed by the Father in the death of Christ. But there is also a declaration of universal love with every pound of the hammer that nailed the nails into his hands and feet. The cross is the global public notice of the Father's true desire for the entire world to look upon his Son and be saved. This is Romans 3, 24. God displayed him publicly as a propitiation for our sins to be received by faith. 
At the cross, the Father was beckoning sinners, and there He continues to beckon sinners today, calling any and all to come and to see His promise sealed in the blood of His own Son, that if we will come and receive the love and the forgiveness and the cleansing of our sin through His Son, then surely we will find Him meeting us with open arms. Don't you remember the prodigal, the prodigal son? The moment he returned to run back to the Father, what did he find? He found the Father fleeing to rescue him, to grab a hold of him, wrapping him up in his arms and bringing him home. That's what the Father does with every single person who turns to Him to have salvation in Jesus Christ. You don't have to be convinced that you are among the elect in order to receive the love of God. That is the whole point that I'm trying to drive at here. In one element, in one aspect, that is irrelevant to the call of the gospel. Because the call of the gospel is simply come to Jesus. That's it. Come to him. Receive forgiveness from his hand. If you will not do that, you will be condemned in hell. That is the Father's proclamation in the gospel. It's freely given. Eternal life is there. Forgiveness of your sins. Fellowship with God in all of eternity future. Freely given. But to all who will reject it, there's only one option. The vindication of the righteousness of God upon you in your sufferings in hell. He's an eternal God, which means He's eternally righteous. How long do you think it takes to make up for sin that is committed against an eternally righteous being. An eternity. That's why the death of Christ is the only thing that is sufficient to cover the hell that we deserve and to pay the ransom for our souls. Because only Christ could offer up an eternal soul for our redemption. That's Hebrews chapter 9. Is this not what we see in the whole counsel of God, this universal call of the Father for everyone to come and receive salvation at the, at the hands of the Son? Ezekiel 18.23, I quoted this last week. The, uh, the Lord says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his evil way and live. Ezekiel 33.11, same thing. Isaiah 45.22, I quoted it, I think, this morning maybe, or maybe I've already quoted it in the sermon. Sunday school and the sermon run together sometimes. When God says to, to all the ends of the earth, He stands and declares to every single sinner on the face of the planet, turn to Me and be saved, for I am God and there is no other. He goes on to qualify the, the extent of that call by saying to Me, every knee shall bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. That means that to the degree that every knee, or excuse me, the, the, the number of knees that will bow and the number of tongues that will swear allegiance to the Lord is the same number whom God beckons to come to Him and be saved. There's not, not two, they're not two separate groups. It's so important for us to get this. If you will allow one of these truths to negate the other, then you will distort the full teaching of the gospel. You will undermine the truth and the power of the universal gospel call. And more important than that, you will distort the character of God that is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. 
Augustine, I love what Augustine said concerning this. He said the cross was a pulpit in which Christ preached His love to the world. Augustine, the greatest developer of sovereign grace since the Apostle Paul in the history of the church, could say that at the cross, the Son was preaching His universal love for the world. You want a heavier hitter than that? Thomas Chalmers. In his, in his sermon on this verse, he says, The atonement of Christ is the great stepping stone by which one and all are welcome to enter into reconciliation and new life. Any and all can come and step upon this atonement, atoning work of Christ in order to receive new life from the hand of the Father. Ian Murray quotes Jonathan Edwards as saying, It is past all contradiction that Christ died to give all an opportunity to be saved. Jonathan Edwards. I about fell over in my chair when I saw that quote. I had to go look it up. It's in volume 13 of the Yale edition of Edwards' work on page uh, 933. No, excuse me, 172. John Murray, a Reformed Presbyterian, not slacking in his Calvinism. John Murray wrote, There is a love of God which goes forth to lost men and is manifested in the manifold blessings which all men without distinction enjoy. A love in which the non-elect persons are embraced and a love which comes to its highest expression in the entreaties, overtures, and demands of gospel proclamation. All he's saying there is that when the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed to the lost, that is the highest expression of the love of God that he has for the world of lost sinners. At least as far as a love that embraces even the non-elect. My friend, please listen to me. Uh, please listen. God loves you. Do you know that? Every single one of you God loves you. I refuse to let your conscience be sullied by a lie from the pit of hell that says God does not love you. I've lived in that pit far too long, right? I've been walking with the Lord for 19 years. 11 of those years, I've been walking with a real conviction of His love. That means for eight years... Eight years, I walked with no assurance of the love of the Father for me because of a distorted understanding of the teaching of Reformed theology. Hyper-Calvinism. And I detest it. God truly does love you. And you need to understand this. No matter who you are in this room, the love of the Father extends for you higher than the heavens themselves from which He sent His Son. The love of the Father for you reaches around you further than the East is from the West. The love of the Father for you, no matter who you are, runs deeper under your feet than the very depths of the sea under you. The love of the Father for you is as full and rich and glorious as is the eternal Son whom He gave up to taste death for you on the cross. That is how great and how deep and how high and how wide God loves you. And He sent His Son to prove it. You know why sinners will go to hell one day? 
Sinners who have never heard the gospel will go to hell because they deserve hell. The law of God written upon the heart, the conscience bearing witness to the righteousness of God will condemn them in the day of judgment. Do you know why those who have heard and rejected the gospel will go to hell? Because 2 Thessalonians 2.10 says, they have refused to receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. It doesn't just say truth there. It says they have refused to believe and receive the love of the truth. The love of God revealed to us in truth in Jesus Christ. Those who reject that will go to hell. Not because they were not loved. But because they refused to receive that love at the hand of Jesus. It's like what the Scottish Calvinist John Duncan said. Pretty sure this is where Charles Spurgeon got his rendition of this. John Duncan said, Men evangelized cannot go to hell but over the bowels of God's mercy. They must wade to hell through the blood of Christ. Isn't that good? There's no one on the face of this planet that does not have the love of God for them declared at the cross. Which leaves us with only one thing to do. And that is to receive the Father's love for us. John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Beloved, the call of the gospel is simply this. Believe in Christ. Believe in His sacrifice for you. Believe that the Father gave the Son over to death in order to demonstrate the depths of His love for you. Those who will look to Jesus Christ and who will take God at His word and who will cast themselves entirely upon the good hope of the Father's love revealed in the Son, they are assured that they will receive eternal life from His hand. And I think it's important to point out that the one who gives that life through Christ is one who does so gladly and joyfully and delightfully. He stands ready to forgive, Psalm 86.5 says. He stands ready to jump at the moment someone turns to him in true repentance. Nicodemus needed to hear that, and so do you and I. God does not want your goodness. God does not even want your righteousness. God does not want anything that you have to give to Him in order to save you. He calls for nothing from you except your trust. He requires nothing but an empty hand of faith that comes simply to cling to and receive everything that He offers you freely in His Son. That is all that is required of you. Come to Jesus and receive Him. Not offer Him anything. Not lay before Him all the reasons why you are good enough to be one of His disciples. No, you come confessing your sin and you come receiving everything that God has given you in Jesus. That's it. 
That's the gospel call. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Foul or naked I come to thee for dress, I'm helpless, I look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior or I die. That is the only plea of anyone who will come to Jesus to be saved is Lord I am foul, I am unclean, I am naked, I am helpless, I have nothing to offer you but these filthy rags. Please wash me or I will die. Come ye sinners. Come ye thirsty. Come and welcome God's free bounty. Glorify. You know how you glorify the free bounty of God in Jesus? You come to the table and you begin eating that bounty. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Let not conscience make you linger, nor fitness fondly dream. All the fitness God requires is for you to feel your need for Him. My friend, I, I'm pleading with everyone in this room with the words of Hebrews 12. Do not refuse him who is speaking. In the gospel, the call of the Father in love is beckoning you to come to his Son, to drink your fill of the love of Christ, and he promises us in his word, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. The call of the gospel is for you to come with a mouth open wide, ready and willing and begging and expecting God to fill that mouth with His glories that He's given you in Jesus. Will you accept that challenge or not? Will you come to the Father with a mouth open wide, begging Him, Lord, I want everything that You have to give me in Your Son. I want it all. I want to be in fellowship with You. I want forgiveness of my sins. I want to walk in holiness and in purity. I want to get sin out of my life. I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to be filled with the knowledge of the love of God in Christ, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. I want to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and I want to be filled up with all the fullness of God. I want those blessings. The only way to get them is to come to God with an empty hand saying, Lord, please give them to me. Jesus says, for all who will do that, they will find full and rich and bountiful blessings from the Lord. My friend, God gave the best for you. He gave the fullness of his image and the one who in his essence is the radiance of his glory. He's the outshining of all the beauty of God. He is the proof of the Father's love for you. I'm begging you, please do not spurn this gift. God will not slap your hand away as you come to receive the gift of his son. Just come and receive that gift in faith. Let's pray. My Father, I pray that you would indeed, truly 
Open us to the riches and the glory of your, of your great love for us in Christ. Oh, let that empower us, Lord. Let that make us to be men, true men in your sight. Let that drive us to be women who are godly and holy and devoting themselves to godliness. Give us grace, Lord, through a conviction of your deep, deep love for us in Christ. A conviction to adorn the gospel by which we've been called through good works and deeds that seek to glorify you and put you on display for everyone to see. We want to let our light shine before men so that they might see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. So, Lord, I pray you would fill us with, your, with a sense of your love, so much so that your commandments would not be burdensome to us, but we would find life and joy in living out your will in Christ's name. Father, for those who don't know you here this morning, I pray that you would pound them with this gospel message of love. And do not let them leave here apart from being soundly converted. I pray, Father, unleash the hound of heaven. Let him do his hounding work. Tree us at the cross. Let us find life there, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.